businessman Sir Frederick Catherwood once had lunch with one of Britain's top scientists, who was at that time president of the Royal Society. And the two men discussed the Bible and Christianity. The aging scientist remained firm in his unbelief. Catherwood writes, only three or four years later, a few months before his death, I saw the same man in the library of our club. A gaunt, gloomy, silent figure, hunched over the fire, staring into nothing, face to face with oblivion. When I left the club some time later, he was standing in the rain without a coat. I offered him a lift. He told me not to bother. He'd come to the end and nothing seemed to matter anymore. What a sad thing to say by someone who had enjoyed a distinguished career, but yet had no future hope beyond this life. One of the big questions people ask is, is there life after death? And people have different views on that. Many hope that there is some sort of future paradise that all but really wicked people will eventually reach. Some, like that scientist, believe that there is nothing after death. A few believe that they will return to this earth in another life form. What do you believe? And where do you get that knowledge from? Well, this evening we'll be studying one of the great Bible passages about Christ's return and the Christian's wonderful hope of being reunited with other believers together with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus was on earth, he said this in John chapter 14 and verses 2 and 3. John 14 verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, what a glorious promise that is. Now, many believers at Thessalonica, to whom this letter was addressed, expected Christ's return very quickly, certainly within their lifetimes. But as time went on and Jesus didn't appear, the inevitable happened. Some of the believers died, which brought sorrow and confusion in their minds. What happens to Christians when they die? Would they somehow miss out on Jesus' return? Paul needed to clear this up and bring comfort and reassurance to their grieving hearts. And we need to be clear on these things also. Now, I don't know whether in school they still talk about the three R's. But this evening, we're going to look at five glorious R's in connection with the Lord's coming. We'll look firstly at Revelation. This is God's truth revealed in his word, so let's believe it and rejoice. 
The second R is return. Christ is coming back. And he's coming back with the souls of departed believers. Third R is resurrection. The believing dead will rise first. Fourthly, there is removal. Living believers will then be caught up in the air. And the final R is reunion. All believers together with the Lord Jesus forever. So firstly then, revelation. This is God's truth. So let's believe it. Let's rejoice in it. Look at verse 13 of our text in 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. And then the first little phrase in verse 15, according to the Lord's own word. You see, the Apostle Paul is making it clear that this teaching was not his theories or some speculation on what might happen in the future. God himself has revealed these things so that we can be certain about our destiny and find comfort, find hope in that. And it's interesting that Paul describes physical death here in verse 13 as falling asleep. Because death is not the end of our existence. At physical death, there is a separation of the material part of our body, that is our flesh and our bones, from our immaterial part. In other words, our soul, our innermost being, the the real me, if you like. Now, the doctrines of soul sleep that the soul goes into some kind of unconscious state after death, and the doctrine of annihilation, that uh, somebody completely exists, uh, ceases to exist in any form at physical death, are false doctrines. The Bible teaches that whilst our physical body ceases to function and decays into dust, our soul continues consciously into our eternal destiny. And our destiny is dependent entirely on our response to the gospel whilst we're living here on earth. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 and 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, good deeds, religious rituals, giving money and so on, can never save a person. How else could Jesus have said to the criminal being crucified on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise? That man had no chance to to do any of those good deeds. All he could do was repent and believe on the Lord Jesus. And Paul gives the reason for this teaching at the end of verse 13. Uh, So that you don't grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
Now, that does not mean that we shouldn't grieve and feel lost when a Christian loved one passes away. The resulting sadness and loneliness is a very normal human reaction, and it's perfectly understandable. It's to be expected. But these verses also remind us of the sure hope that one day believers will be reunited with those departed loved ones who have also trusted Christ to save them from sin and that those believers that have already died will not miss out on this marvellous event. On the other hand, there's no such hope for those who have not trusted Christ. But for them, there's only despair. For they must come before the Lord one day and be held accountable for their rejection of the gospel message. Dwight Moody used to say, I never preach a sermon without thinking that possibly the Lord may come before I preach another. And I wonder how often we might think, well, if Christ was to return tomorrow... I'll never have another opportunity to speak to my neighbour or my work colleague or my family member about the Lord. Revelation. Don't be ignorant, is what Paul is saying in verse 13. God has revealed these truths to us through his word and we can be 100% confident that it is the truth. Revelation. Secondly, return. Christ is coming again with the souls of departed believers. Verse 14 of our text. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And then the first part of verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. On the third day after his crucifixion, Jesus bodily rose from death and then after 40 days returned to heaven. Now the Christians at Thessalonica believed Jesus was going to return again and take them back to heaven as well. But what upset them was the thought that those believers who had already died and were buried would miss out on Christ's return. And what Paul is saying here is don't concern yourself with departed believers. Because actually, they will be returning with Jesus. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 to 8. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. And then he says in verse 8, we are confident and I, uh, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. See, whilst we still inhabit our current bodies, well, we cannot be physically in the presence of our Saviour. 
But you know, at the moment we shed these old worn out bodies, whether at the moment of physical death or when Christ returns, then we'll always be in his presence. And when Christ returns, he will bring with him the conscious souls of those believers who have already died physically. And as Jesus, along with the departed believers, returns from heaven, the second part of verse 16 reveals that they will be accompanied by three audible signs. Firstly, there in verse 16, a loud command. The Greek word has a military ring to it. It's like a call by the commanding officer to his troops to fall in. And although we're not told who gives the command, it does rather remind me of Jesus' shouted command to Lazarus in the tomb in John 11. Lazarus, come out! Therefore, perhaps this audible shout in verse 16 will be Christ's command for the bodies of dead saints to be resurrected and reunited with their owners. There's a loud command. Secondly, there's the voice of the archangel. Now, an archangel is a chief angel, God's highest ranked and most powerful angels. There's an archangel called Michael, mentioned in Jude 9, also in Daniel and in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7, where uh, he will lead God's angels in the final battles against Satan and his angels before they're dispatched to the eternal lake of fire. According to Jewish tradition, there are seven archangels, although scripture doesn't confirm that. Now, exactly who this particular archangel is or what he says here, we don't know. But we see that he adds his voice to the shout of command. The voice of the archangel and then thirdly, the trumpet of God. Trumpets in the Bible sounded for different reasons. To warn of enemies, to declare war, to gather people together to announce special feasts and celebrations. And we also read in Revelation chapters 8 to 11 that trumpets will also herald the judgments. And here the trumpet sound confirms the command for God's people to be ready to go. A shout, a voice, and a trumpet call will echo across the earth above every other noise. Christ is returning. And no believer will miss out. There's return. And then thirdly, there's resurrection. We see from this text that the believing dead will rise first. Look at the second part of verse 15. We tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then we read at the end of verse 16, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. You see, far from deceased believers missing out on Christ's return, 
They will be the first ones to experience it. Those who have died in Christ, in other words, believers, and whose souls are returning with him, their bodies will be resurrected to life. In other words, there will be a joining back together of their material body and immaterial body. But I don't want my worn-out earthly body back again, you may say. I've had enough of it. Well, the answer is you won't. You see, resurrection is not just reconstruction, but transformation. And this is something that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 42 to 44. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, Paul says, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And Paul here is making a fourfold contrast between our current physical bodies on earth and the Christian's resurrection body in their future heavenly inheritance. The first concerns the resurrection body's durability. Verse 42, the body that is sown is perishable, but raised imperishable. You see, our present bodies are subject to disease, death, and decay. But the future body will be immune from such things. We'll never get sick and diseased again. The resurrected body's durability. And then secondly, there's the resurrection body's value. Verse 43, the body is sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. However much an undertaker may try to dress up a body to look its very best, it's still a decaying corpse, fit only for the ground. It reminds me of Martha's horrified reaction when Jesus commanded the tomb of Lazarus to be opened. But Lord, she said, by this time there's a bad odour. A stench, for he's been there four days. But the new resurrected body will be a glorious body, perfected for eternally praising and enjoying the creator who made us and the redeemer who saved us. The resurrection body's value. Thirdly, the resurrection body's ability. Verse 43b, the body is sown in weakness, but raised in power. Our present bodies have so many physical limitations. It needs rest and sleep, food, water, air, and protection from adverse environments. But the resurrection body will have an eternal self-sufficiency within it decreed by God. There's no indication given in scripture 
that the resurrection body will need sleep or food to live, for instance. And then fourthly, the resurrection body's sphere of existence. Verse 44. The body is sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. Currently, we have a natural physical body, one that is limited in time, space, ability, and durability. But one day, we'll have a spiritual physical body, one that is outside of time and space, one that will not have malfunctions and defects, that will not get sick or diseased, that will never grow old and grey and wrinkled. It's like planting bulbs in the ground in autumn that look dead and useless, but then in spring, seeing the most beautiful flowers grow up from them. And a believer's old body is like the bulb planted in the ground. But their resurrection body is like the beautiful flower that comes from the bulb. Now the difference is that whilst spring flowers bloom and die on an annual cycle, our resurrection bodies will never die. They will last perfectly forever as we praise, honour and worship our Creator and our Saviour with every other believer for all eternity in perfect unity and safety. Resurrection. The believing dead will rise first. Fourthly, removal. Living believers will then be caught up Look at the first part of verse 17 of our text. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. For sleeping believers, there is resurrection but for living believers at the moment of Christ's return, there is removal. The Greek word for caught up is a very strong one. It means to seize, to pluck, to take by force. You see, when Christ returns, he is literally going to snatch away all the believers living on the earth at that time. And nobody will be able to prevent them from going. Not even the most secure prison. Now, how will it happen? Will believers slowly rise up in the air as Jesus did when he was taken up into heaven in front of the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9? Well, Paul supplies the answer again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 51 to 52. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Listen, he writes, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We'll be changed in a flash. 
in the twinkling of an eye. It will happen almost instantaneously. One moment will be here, but in less time than it takes to click your fingers, we'll be gone. Now, of course, we don't know when this will be. But we must be prepared for the moment. Is your heart right before the Lord? Can you confidently say this evening, Jesus is my Lord and Saviour. He died on the cross and rose again to take away my sin. And I'm trusting him alone to save me. Because those who are not saved will not be able to participate in this glorious event. Warren Wearsby writes about a quaint inscription he saw on a gravestone in a cemetery not far from Windsor Castle. It read, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. Now, someone who read that inscription on the gravestone decided to add these lines. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Now, believers in Christ have wonderful assurance and hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his promised return. And so do you have that hope in your heart? Where will you be going? Will you be going up to be with the Lord in heaven? Or down to a terrible place to await the Lord's final judgment? Removal. And then finally, reunion. All believers together with the Lord Jesus forever. The second part of verse 17 and into verse 18. Paul writes, And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Resurrected sleeping believers and transformed living believers will all be joined together in one joyful reunion with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We'll never be separated again. What a hope we have and what comfort that brings. Will we recognise our loved ones again? Well, I believe we will. Think back to the flower bulb analogy. Although the bulb is not the same as the flower, yet there is a link, there is a continuity between them. A daffodil bulb will produce only a daffodil, not a crocus or a snowdrop. And so also, yes, we'll be different, but yet we'll still retain our perfected individual characteristics that make us unique as God's uh, created beings. Gotquestions.org, in answering the question, will we be able to see and know our friends and family members in heaven, says this. 
in eternity. There will be plenty of time to see, know, and spend time with our friends and family members. However, that will not be our primary focus in heaven. We'll be worshipping God and enjoying the wonders of heaven. Our reunions with loved ones are more likely to be filled with recounting the grace and glory of God in our lives. His wondrous love and his mighty works. We will rejoice all the more because we can praise and worship the Lord in the company of other believers. Especially those we loved on earth. If Jesus was recognisable in his glorified body, we also will be recognisable in our glorified bodies. Being able to see our loved ones is a glorious aspect of heaven. But heaven is far more about God and far less about us. What a pleasure it will be to be reunited with our loved ones and worship God with them. For all eternity. One question that's asked sometimes is Does the believer have some kind of temporary glorified body during the time period between their physical death and the resurrection of their transformed body when they return with Christ? Scripture doesn't actually tell us, but it would seem likely that that would be the case. But whatever happens, it doesn't really matter because I know that I'll be rejoicing in the presence of my Saviour. I'll be worshipping him and meeting all the other believers throughout history who've already been promoted to glory. And so as Paul says in verse 18, may we remind and encourage one another with these words as Paul did to the Thessalonians. Revelation. This is God's truth. So let's believe it. Let's rejoice in it. Return. Christ is coming again with the souls of departed believers. Resurrection. The believing dead will rise first. Removal. Living believers will then be caught up. And reunion. All believers together with the Lord Jesus forever. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, these verses remind us of the glorious hope that we have as believers in Christ. For we know that our time here on earth is not the end. That there is something so much better that awaits your, your, your sons and daughters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. Help us to encourage one another with these words as we look forward in, our, in eager anticipation to our Lord's return. And yet at the same time, know that whilst we're still here, there's a job to be done. There's a gospel to be proclaimed. There's people to be witnessed to and opportunities for gospel ministry. So Lord, help us to make the most of the time that we have, and yet at the same time, living in that eager expectation that you might return any day. We ask this 
in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our last hymn together. Christ is surely coming, bringing his reward, Alpha and Omega, first and last and Lord. Let's stand together to sing. close from the doxology at the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.